0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: I don't think the perpetrators were interested in having Sirhan hit Kennedy. They relied on the fact that he couldn't be trusted to carry that out. They had other people in place. Look at the mechanics of this. It's devastating against Caesar. Caesar admits that when the shooting begins, he drops down to the floor and pulls his weapon. So he's in position, he and he alone is in position to fire these sharp upward angle shots as he rises up or as he drops to the ground. And he
0: admits all of this. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Lawrence Teeter. Lawrence Teeter is attorney for Sirhan Sirhan, who was convicted for the assassination of Senator Robert F. Kennedy on June 5th, 1968. Senator Kennedy was shot in the pantry of the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles just after he had won the California Democratic primary and had taken a giant step toward winning the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. Guns and Butter attended the Coalition on Political Assassinations meeting Killing Hope, 35th anniversary of the murder of RFK in Los Angeles, June 5th through the 8th 2003 to bring you a report on the case. The United States has one assassination attorney litigating one of the assassinations of the 1960s. That one attorney is Los Angeles lawyer Lawrence Teeter and we have a chance to hear him present his case today.
1: I'm the only attorney Sirhan has ever had who's clearly and forthrightly proclaimed Sirhan's innocence not only of the shooting but of any culpability in the act of the assassination, because I presented evidence in a historic declaration that Dr. Herbert Spiegel and I worked on together, which establishes that Surhan was programmed through hypnosis, and as a result of this hypnotic programming, was unconscious due to programming, and lacked any knowledge or memory of the events involving the assassination, and was unable to recall the experience of being programmed. So. If that's the case, and the evidence overwhelmingly uh, establishes that it is, Sirhan is completely innocent because he has no criminal intent. Guilt in our system requires a criminal act animated by a criminal intent. There's no criminal intent there. And as you'll hear, Sirhan was clearly and absolutely not the person who shot Robert Kennedy. He couldn't possibly have been. I think that it's reasonable to look at this assassination as a sequel, a follow-up to the JFK assassination. What did the planners of this assassination learn from Dallas? Well, they learned, we don't want another Dallas. And that's true in a number of respects. First of all, Dallas was a public relations disaster for the planners of that killing. Maybe it was the same group or the same body of institutions. One reason is that nobody saw the officially designated fall guy fire a shot. So it was up for speculation as to whether he was guilty or not. They could never establish their case. Second, and probably more irrelevance, is that it looked like a cover-up when Jack Ruby was allowed to walk into a garage full of Dallas detectives and blow away the officially designated fall guy long before a trial was even contemplated. That looks very bad. And the third thing that looked bad about Dallas is that there was overwhelming evidence that emerged very early on that the shots that killed Kennedy came from a direction that was diametrically opposite to that of the shooting angle that Oswald would have been able to use, assuming he was in the Texas School Book Depository firing away. The, that's established by eyewitnesses, that's established by people who heard the direction of shots, and it's established above all by the film. So Dallas was not something that the LA crowd wanted to repeat. The ideal way around the Dallas disaster which by 1966 generated so much public skepticism that there was no real basis for support for the Warren Commission. The ideal answer to Dallas and that disaster was to have somebody walk into a room full of people and fire away. He's seen in the act, it's open and shut, nobody questions it, it doesn't look suspicious at all, and it certainly doesn't reek of conspiracy. The problem is, how do you get somebody to do that? They're committing legal suicide. They're subjecting themselves to the possibility of a death penalty trial. Not only that, but it's doubly dangerous for the planners of such an attack because anybody who's arrested under these circumstances might try to rat on accomplices, identify them, explain the plot, expose the whole thing, and then Hubert Humphrey gets elected by an electorate that doesn't like a repeat of Dallas. So they can't run that risk at all. How do you solve that problem? Well, hypnosis furnishes a perfect way of solving that problem. Because if you have a hypno-programmed Fall guy, you have somebody who's unconscious, who doesn't know what he's doing at the time, and therefore can't describe anything. He can't identify what he did, he can't identify anybody, he can't defend himself, he's helpless, all he can do is babble, I don't remember and I don't know, and come across as a, as a, as a blooming liar. Now, there's also another danger the planners of this assassination had to deal with. The other danger is that you can't leave the act of killing Robert Kennedy in the hands of somebody who's in a hypnotic trance. I mean, that's, it just, just doesn't make any sense. So they've got to have somebody else to do the deed while their program fall guy takes the rap. That means multiple guns are going to be in use. That's very dangerous because that can come out of the trial. How do you prevent that from coming out of the trial? You have a lawyer who's working for the state whose behavior you can guarantee through leverage won't bring up devastating facts pointing toward a conspiracy. The L.A. plan contains all three elements of this magic mix. A hypno-programmed fall guy, somebody else to do the deed, and a lawyer who's working for the state. Now, I'll explain all three of these elements. The first one I want to talk about is a a compromised lawyer. Well, what happened is this. The first move along these lines was made by CIA assassinations operative John Rosselli, who, during the course of the Friars Club trial, went to Las Vegas and bribed a court reporter together with others and obtained stolen grand jury transcripts illegally from this court reporter and brought them back to Los Angeles and gave them to a pool of prominent LA criminal defense attorneys involved in the representation of the Friars Club defendants. By the way, these lawyers are not movement activists. They're representing mobsters. These are mob lawyers or traditional defense lawyers. So they're not people who are like yours truly. According to what the government said, Grant Cooper, among several others, obtained possession of stolen transcripts from, among others, John Rosselli. This took place before the assassination in January of 1968. That meant that long before the assassination was actually allowed to proceed, there was a pool of compromised lawyers who could be drawn upon in the event that an assassination took place here. And then the problem would be how to steer the case in the direction of one of these lawyers so that that lawyer got it. Well. Right after Sirhan's arrest, an ACLU lawyer named A.L. Weirin pops up at the county jail and interviews Sirhan and strongly recommends that Sirhan hire renowned criminal defense attorney Grant Cooper, whom John Rosselli and the CIA know is in possession of stolen grand jury transcripts. It's not clear how Weirin would know that, but Weirin did some very weird things. First of all, he told some people Uh, two, in fact, that Sirhan had confessed guilt, not something that would have happened, Sirhan had no knowledge or memory of the crime. It's a false statement. It's also a breach of the attorney-client relationship for him to make that statement. It's an outrage. He then jumps up in front of a media camera and says, oh, by the way, Sirhan ordered books on the Rosicrucians. Why is he doing that? Why isn't that unethical on his part? He's damaging Sirhan's reputation and painting him as a nut. Then he goes out and gets Grant Cooper. As soon as Grant Cooper is online, so to speak, something very mysterious happens during this Friars Club proceeding. Grant Cooper leaves the courtroom, as do the other attorneys over lunch. Who's left in the courtroom but the prosecutor, David Nissen, and a court reporter. And the prosecutor claims that during the lunch hour, the court reporter asked him to look for a transcript that the court reporter had somehow lost or mislaid. Nissen walks around the room and begins to look at defense counsel table. Isn't that where prosecutors are supposed to look? He goes right over to Grant Cooper's place and says, Aha, what's this? A stolen grand jury transcript. I never passed that out. Suddenly, Nissen has caught Grant Cooper in the act of possessing stolen grand jury transcripts that we know, in retrospect, were supplied by CIA assassinations operative John Rosselli, who had access to counsel table as a co defendant in this case. So, Nissen makes a big deal out of it, takes it to the judge, wants an investigation, the FBI gets involved, the press is involved, the grand jury proceeding ensues. And then, the trial judge in the Sirhan case is advised. There's a lot of adverse publicity. It's very embarrassing to Sirhan. Now, I have some documents that, uh, that I obtained from an archival collection. And these documents shed a, a brand new devastating light on this picture. On December 23rd according to one LAPD report the LAPD expected that Grant Cooper would be indicted within a day or two and that the trial would be adversely affected or the trial would be affected. This is December 23rd. On January 3rd another document says Frenchy Lajeunesse, the FBI agent on the case or one of the most, more prominent ones, I think the key one, is monitoring Grant Cooper's dilemma What's a dilemma? That means he's being given a choice. You either protect yourself, or you sell your client out, or if you represent your client effectively, you're gone. That's his dilemma. On January 5th, Cooper is in the judges chambers making a statement about his situation. And he says, well, I'm facing the possibility of indictment. But I've talked to Matt Byrne, the US attorney in Los Angeles, and I can't conceive that it would happen. That's a deal, folks. They've made a deal. It's gone from the indictment is imminent in one or two days, to a dilemma, to I can't conceive that it would happen. So that's a deal. There's an agreement that these two men have worked out. And we can expect to see a series of actions by Cooper that makes good on his promise to throw his client to the wolves in order to save himself. And he he doesn't waste any time. The first thing is, he announces ready for trial after only 30 days trial preparation. This is a death penalty case. That's unbelievable on itself. By, by itself, that would prove my point. He also announces ready for trial in a death penalty case without even seeing the autopsy report. Now, that's especially egregious in any murder case, but all the more so in a death penalty case, because at that time under California law, unless your client actually killed the victim, your client was not even eligible for the death penalty. That's not the case anymore, but it was then. So if the autopsy report identified somebody else or exonerated Sirhan, the autopsy report would have been a document that could at least have been used to save Sirhan from the risk of execution. You wouldn't want to start that trial without an autopsy report. And especially because it was well known from the Sandy Serrano incident that there was public identification of other people running from the scene saying that multiple shooters were involved. Certainly any attorney who was acting in good faith would have not wanted to go to trial without seeing the autopsy report. The autopsy report uh, was accordingly not available to Grant Cooper when he jumps up in front of the jury and says, we acknowledge that our client killed Robert Kennedy. The only issue you will be asked to decide is his state of mind. Well, Grant Cooper had no basis for making that concession. He had no evidence in front of him that would have allowed him to conclude that that was a reasonable thing to say, except his own lack of familiarity with the evidence. Then the autopsy report is ultimately disclosed after this concession has been made. The autopsy report, if you look at it, says that the shots were fired from Kennedy's rear, but all the witness reports say, and all the witness testimony is going to say, that Sirhan fired while standing face-to-face in front of Robert Kennedy. So he's exonerated. He's not the shooter. There's a reasonable doubt that you can raise about whether he's the person who shot, and therefore you can arguably get out of the death penalty at least. Cooper doesn't do that. The autopsy report also says that the muzzle distance between the assailant's weapon and Kennedy's body was somewhere between actual physical contact and three inches. But the witness reports and the testimony all say that the muzzle distance between Surhan's weapon and the body of Robert Kennedy was no closer than one and a half feet and actually on average 3 feet, one witness places the distance at 5 feet. So in both respects, the autopsy report exonerates Sirhan. Also the angle of entry is is off. Sirhan is standing in front of Robert Kennedy, off slightly to the side, holding his weapon horizontally with the floor. The angle of entry of the bullets that hit Kennedy from the rear is at a sharp upward angle. There is one person who is standing in position, that's Thane Eugene Caesar. But Grant Cooper never makes an issue out of that, even though, in a death penalty case, that would have been a golden opportunity to save his client from the death penalty. Why? Because if somebody else was the killer, your client is not eligible under then prevailing law for the death penalty. Grant Cooper didn't take the most obvious, basic, elementary, rudimentary, fundamental steps to save his client from the death penalty. He just went along with the prosecution's case. And instead of moving for a mistrial, when the autopsy report was belatedly uh, handed over. What he should have done, by the way, is said, Your Honor, I conceded in front of the jury before I saw the autopsy report that my client killed Robert Kennedy. I know now from the autopsy report that there's plenty of reason to suspect that that was not true. In fact, I can prove that it's not true. I demand a mistrial. I want to start this whole process over with so I can pick a new jury with a new strategy and make another opening statement to the jury with new voir dire. That's what he should have done. Any reasonable defense attorney would have done that, but Grant Cooper was on the hooks and he had to make the prosecution team happy. So he didn't even do that.
0: You're listening to Lawrence Teeter, attorney for Sirhan Sirhan, who was wrongfully convicted for the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. This is Guns and Butter.
1: The next thing that happens in this unbelievable cavalcade of proof that Cooper was fulfilling his deal with Matt Byrne is that the prosecution discloses to Cooper in chambers that it lacks foundation for the bullets. Now, that's legalese for the prosecution is conceding. It cannot authenticate the bullets. Why is that important? Because the prosecution's expert was allowed, without objection, to jump up in front of the jury and testify that to the exclusion of all other bullets in the world, bullets fired from the so-called Serhan weapon match the victim bullets in this case. But if the bullets lack foundation and can't be authenticated, there's no basis for that inclusion. Cooper could have blocked that devastating testimony simply by objecting to these foundationless bullets. Instead, what he said in chambers was, upon being thus advised, you won't have any objection from me about that. I get asked all the time, didn't the guns match? Well, no, they didn't, because the bullets were not authentic bullets. So there was no basis for the prosecution's claim that there was a match. Cooper went right along with this. He stipulated to fake bullets and extra guns. We'll get into guns in a second. Then he does something that, that I think is the ultimate act of unbelievable misconduct for a defense attorney. The prosecution wants to settle this case by way of a plea bargain. Understandably, because they don't want all this stuff coming in front of the jury. There's a big risk that the conspiracy is going to become unraveled if the autopsy report gets in front of the jury it's after the judge rejects the possibility of a plea bargain that the prosecution finally discloses the autopsy report because then you know it's going to have to come out but until then they withheld it. So they were asking Grant Cooper to agree to a plea bargain before he'd even seen the autopsy report. But although the judge rejects it, the judge rejected it with a proviso that the prosecution should still be allowed if Sirhan pled guilty to seek the death penalty. Well that's not a plea bargain, that's suicide. Cooper goes on the record to announce that he recommended such a result for Sirhan. Why is he doing that? Nobody would do that unless he was trying to prove something to the U.S. Attorney's Office across the street. Gee, uh, Matt, I'm really behaving myself, I'm carrying out my side of the bargain, I want you to consider this when my case comes up. Cooper also, during the trial, supports the prosecution's theory of a phantom jet motive. This is important because during an interview with prosecution psychiatrist Seymour Pollock, Sirhan has asked, Sirhan, how could you do this? Why did you do it? And he says, I don't know. That's what I'm trying to figure out. I supported the guy. I would have voted for him. He was for the underdog. And you can hear the doctor for the prosecution, Seymour Pollock, groan as though to say, My God, we don't have a motive. Pretty important. So they made up a motive. And the motive they came up with is the Phantom Chat motive. The story went, as the story goes, Sirhan heard a broadcast on the radio which announced that Robert Kennedy was going to support the sale of US Phantom Jets to Israel. He became enraged, ran into his room, and wrote down in a a notebook the date of that broadcast, May 19th, RFK must be assassinated, the RFK must die, RFK must be assassinated, up and down the page in this hypnotic trance-like fashion. The problem is that the the broadcast that Sirhan heard was two days later, and it didn't contain any mention of Phantom Jets. So there was no evidentiary support For the Phantom Jet motive. But that motive was jointly sponsored not only by the prosecution but also by the defense. Here you have a defense attorney who's who's actively presenting evidence of a non-existent motive, a fake motive to kill. He's helping the prosecution prosecute the case. And as though that's not enough, he then presents to the jury testimony that Sirhan was contemplating political assassinations since high school. And that's based upon a notation in a book that was an an inauthentic and fabricated notation, placed there when the book was in the custody of Michael McCowan, a former LAPD officer who was under pressure from the LAPD and was on federal parole at the time. McCowan presented himself as a defense investigator. He prepared an inventory of markings in books. That inventory contained no notation reflecting the existence of this marking. Then all of a sudden, that marking appears after McCowan has access to the book. And Cooper gets up in front of the jury and asks Dr. Marcus, a court-appointed psychiatrist, Dr. Marcus, I will avow to you that this is Sirhan's handwriting. No evidentiary basis for that, he's just hanging his client. Suppose I were to tell you, and I avow to you, that this handwriting shows that Sirhan wrote out the words and many more will follow, next to a description of the McKinley assassination in this history book. What would be your conclusion? Well, the doctor obligingly says, well, it would be that Sirhan was contemplating political assassination since high school. How does that help your client in a death penalty case in which your client is, 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 is accused of political assassinations? I mean, that helps the prosecution. By the way, it's legally irrelevant, but the defense has waived it because the defense has presented this prosecution evidence on its own. Now, uh, here comes the big ticket item. There is overwhelming evidence presented even in the trial record, and much outside the trial record as well, demonstrates that Sirhan was programmed through hypnosis to walk in and fire with no knowledge and no memory. This is not presented, instead what, what Cooper presents to the jury is an outrageous conclusion that Sirhan lost control of himself as a result of mirrors and lights that triggered an existing condition of paranoid schizophrenia and caused him to go wild and fire shots and kill Robert Kennedy. First of all this conclusion is malpractice from the doctor because schizophrenics have a very low level of hypnotizability the doctor's testimony established that Sirhan was readily hypnotizable and readily programmable. So it was a fake defense and the jury rejected it. Seymour Pollock rejected schizophrenia justifiably but for the wrong reasons. Um, and uh, the jury convicted uh, Sirhan and sent him off to the gas chamber. Well, what is the evidence that shows Sirhan's high level of hypnotizability? First of all, Right after the assassination, Sirhan spoke to a prosecutor, and he engages in a very articulate colloquy about somebody else's case, not his own, somebody else's. And the prosecutor, sensing that something is wrong with the scenario, asks Sirhan questions designed to determine whether he knows where he is. And it quickly becomes apparent that Sirhan has no idea that he hasn't even been taken before a judge to be arraigned. He's totally, he, he's not oriented, he's, he has no contact with reality. He doesn't know what's happening. This is right after he's taken into custody. That's, right there, pretty powerful evidence that he's operating in an altered state of mind. In his cell, Sirhan is met with experiments performed by defense psychiatrist Bernard Diamond. Bernard Diamond holds up a quarter in front of Sirhan's face, and Sirhan goes right into the hypnotic trance, indicating to the doctor According to testimony presented in trial, that Sirhan was an experienced hypnotic subject and had undergone hypnosis before the assassination. Well, right there, there's a basis for laying a foundation for the argument that Sirhan doesn't deserve the death penalty. And there certainly is a basis for exploring the possibility that he was programmed. And then there's more that materializes along these lines. Dr. Diamond tells Sirhan in trance, Sirhan, when I wake you up, I'm going to touch my forehead and you're going to climb the bars of your cell like a monkey. So he wakes him up, touches his forehead, up the bars of the cell goes Sirhan, and looks down at the doctor with mucky-like expressions. The doctor says, Sirhan, who told you to do that? No one. I'm doing it on my own. A perfect example of Sirhan's high level of hypnotizability and programmability. He's being programmed to do something he wouldn't ordinarily do, with no memory of being programmed, but no knowledge that he's acting in response to instructions from a programmer. It's a perfect example of how this assassination was arranged. And there are others. Next, the defense had access to a page from a notebook found in Sirhan's residence, which contains repeated incantations of the phrase. I already told you about it. RFK must die. RFK must be assassinated. Robert F. Kennedy must be assassinated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the prosecution waved this in front of the jury as evidence that Sirhan planned the assassination, that there was premeditation. The defense had a perfect answer for this. Because under hypnosis in his cell before trial, Sirhan was asked by Dr. Diamond, tell us more about Robert Kennedy. And he wrote out such phrases as, RFK must die, 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 RFK must die. The same pattern of writing that appeared in Sirhan's room shows up again on papers prepared in Sirhan's cell under hypnosis, leading to the obvious conclusion that Sirhan wrote the pages in his room in a hypnotic trance. Well, if he was hypnotized to write the diary, he was hypnotized to walk in and fire a weapon. And he was unconscious and innocent, and that should have been the defense. Was that defense presented? No, of course not. But there was an overwhelming basis for it. And there's other evidence to support the hypnosis concept that I've expressed to you today. He had no recollection of writing the notebooks. He said, it doesn't look like my writing. Well, it was never tested by the defense. But he said, it doesn't look like my writing. He didn't even recall it. That's important, because at trial, he said something very similar about the assassination. Sirhan, did you shoot Robert Kennedy? Answer, I don't remember. I'm told I did. I must have. That's the same response he gave with reference to the notebooks that were written in a hypnotic trance. So you can see the pattern. He's asked, was someone with you? And in his cell, in trance, he writes, after some questioning, the girl, the girl, the girl. And he's asked her name. And he groans and shuts down, indicating, according to Dr. Spiegel, a kind of blocking mechanism is in place. He recalls in the waking state that he met a girl near a coffee urn outside the pantry, and that he had a conversation with her about coffee and, uh, and milk and cream. And after this conversation, He blacked out. He recalled something else. He recalled that the girl led him into a dark place. And then he blacked out and uh, remembers being choked on a steam table. So that girl apparently played the role of somebody who who gave him post-hypnotic suggestions, similar to those given by Dr. Diamond in the the cell, when Dr. Diamond touched his forehead and up the bars of the cell went Sirhan, doing something he wouldn't ordinarily do, except as a result of hypnotic programming. The defense psychiatrist placed Sirhan under hypnosis and asked him to reenact the crime. They said, Sirhan, here comes Robert Kennedy. The bombs are falling. And then he begins to breathe heavily. And they asked him, reach for the gun. They begin shouting, reach for the gun. Again and again they shout, reach for the gun. He doesn't reach for the gun. What he reaches for is his crotch, indicating, again, a blocking mechanism is in place. The blocking mechanism is so potent that not only can't he remember the name of the girl, But he can't even reenact what everybody knows he did, which is to reach for a gun. Everybody knows he did that. But he's prevented by this blocking mechanism, this hypnotic blocking mechanism, from even reaching for the gun. Another indication of hypnosis is that right after the crime, he was shivering. He was cold. He was also shivering and cold when coming out of these trances during his in-cell hypnotic sessions with the doctors an indication that he was coming out of a hypnotic trance following the assassination. Now, the prosecution's other argument for premeditation is that Sirhan went to the San Gabriel Valley Gun Club firing range and practiced rapid fire firing on the day of the assassination. Well, something very odd about that. The sign-in sheet shows that Sirhan did so apparently in the presence of a police officer, LAPD officer Lee. Is that a smart place to dry run a political assassination? But if you think you're just there having fun, or if you think you're climbing the bars of your cell like a monkey to see outside and check the weather, or because you want to, then it's not an unreasonable thing to do. Who cares? If you have nothing to hide, then why not fire your weapon in front of LAPD officer Lee? And it's even better than that, because on June 1st, Sirhan is out at the Corona Police Department gun range practicing with a gun at a police range. Is that a smart place to dry run a political assassination? If you're going to claim, I don't remember, and uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, you're seen in the act of planning it. How does that dovetail with your planned defense, your planned fake defense, as the prosecution would have us believe, that you don't remember? It doesn't. So they get him out there, dry running, and. They withheld from the defense a key document that I've just discovered that was placed before the California Supreme Court in my second petition. and That document discloses that on June 1st, Sirhan was followed into the gun range by somebody with a Sirhan-like face who was larger. That somebody signed Sirhan's name on the roster, meaning that Sirhan had a handler. He was set up. There we have it, the smoking gun, Sirhan is a fall guy. He was set up. That document was deliberately withheld from the defense. I have a declaration to that effect from Robert Blair Kaiser who never saw this document even though he carefully read everything and that document is not in his book. So that document certainly provides overwhelming support for the idea that Sirhan was a clay pigeon, not that he was planning the attack himself and acting alone and acting out of some Palestinian rage about phantom jets but that he was set up. He was out there, not planning an assassination, but having a good time. That's as far as he could tell.
0: You're listening to Lawrence Teeter, attorney for Sirhan Sirhan, who was wrongfully convicted for the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. This is Guns and Butter.
1: Now, there's something else that Sirhan did that supports the use of hypnosis. He didn't drink. But on the day of the assassination at the hotel, he consumed four Tom Collins drinks. That's a lot of alcohol. Isn't that a strange thing to do if you're not a drinker, to drink four Tom Collins drinks? It's never been explained why he did that. Well, Dr. Spiegel hypothesizes that that was probably something he was programmed to do. Use of alcohol in trance deepens the amnesia flowing from the trance experience. It makes it more difficult to recover your memory even with the aid of hypnosis. So the programmers would have had Sirhan drink alcohol, which he didn't ordinarily do, to make it more difficult for him to recall what happened when hypnotized in preparation for trial. That's a powerful indication that he was also hypnotized. He didn't drink. All of a sudden he's, he's boozing it up. That's another reason that the planners of this assassination would not have entrusted Serhan with the act of doing in Robert Kennedy. Not only was he in a hypnotic trance, he was loaded, he was drunk with four hard liquor drinks. You're going to entrust a person in that condition with the responsibility to carry out a killing? Of course not. You're going to have somebody else do it, and somebody else did it. So this is the defense that could have been presented for Sirhan. Much of the evidence I've told you was on the record. Some of it was not on the record. Oh, something else that happened that's interesting. Sirhan was allowed by Grant Cooper to be hypnotized as well as interviewed alone by the prosecution psychiatrist. I mean, that's unprecedented. What kind of a defense attorney would allow a, a psychiatrist in a murder case or any criminal case, especially a death penalty case, to have unrestricted solo access to the client? It just wouldn't happen unless the defense attorney was working off a beef from a prosecuting agency. Following these unaccompanied solo sessions, some of which involved the use of hypnosis, Serhan became more sympathetic to the idea that he may have intended the assassination and this change of heart comes out when Sirhan is asked by Grant Cooper to explain the possibility that he may have tried to reinforce his willingness to carry out the assassination by following a Rosicrucian manual that said write it down repeatedly. The defense jumped up and presented before the jury a conclusion that the repeat writing in the notebooks was done by Sirhan so as to reinforce his willingness to carry out the crime and that that was acting out an instruction or a recommendation in Rosicrucian literature. Rosicrucian literature was available to Sirhan. Now, parenthetically why would a defense attorney put on that kind of evidence? Why would a defense attorney ask a jury to conclude, well, my client wrote down I'm gonna kill Robert Kennedy because he wanted to reinforce his willingness to do it. I mean, that walks your client straight into the gas chamber. That's something that nobody would do unless they were trying to get their client killed to save themselves. That's where Matt Byrne comes into the picture in the U.S. Attorney's Office. But there's a problem with his auto-hypnosis theory. several problems with it. First of all, schizophrenics don't hypnotize well. That means that Sirhan was not a schizophrenic and the defense of schizophrenia was nonsense. The defense testimony ignored the fact that there was no evidence in the record of Sirhan's programming himself or hypnotizing, yeah he engaged in self-hypnosis but there was no evidence that he programmed himself. The record was replete with confirmation that Sirhan was externally programmable and externally hypnotizable. So why would the defense attorney throw away all this valuable evidence supporting a hypnosis defense and latch on to a crazy theory that Sirhan hypnotized himself and programmed himself to commit an act for which he had no motive. Just to make sure the jury didn't get confused by this, Grant Cooper has Sirhan get up and lecture the jury for two days on the history of the Palestinian people and all the abuse they've suffered at the hands of Israel and all the abuse he took when he was a resident in in Jordan. What's the relevance of that? None unless the defense attorney is trying to get the jury to think, my client was enraged against Israel and therefore he had a motive to go after Robert Kennedy because of this phantom jet sale that he didn't even know about before the assassination. So that's the case for Sirhan's actual innocence as a person who had criminal intent. Now, I said that Sirhan was not the person who shot Robert Kennedy, and I've already explained why. But there are other things that the prosecution did to make it easy for Sirhan to get convicted. And before I go into those, I just want to tell you what kind of benefit Grant Cooper was able to draw as a result of his collaboration with the prosecution. After the jury returned its death verdict, Grant Cooper was indicted for contempt charges as a result of his possession of these grand jury transcripts and as a result of his having deceived Judge Gray. Well, you'd expect there would have been a harsh sentencing memorandum from U.S. Attorney Matt Byrne. Matt Byrne said, in his sentencing memorandum. This crime is such an affront to the administration of justice that we are not even going to recommend a sentence. Now, that is the most colossal non-sequitur I've ever seen in in a legal memorandum. It's so bad, we're not even going to ask for time. (laughs) I think the judge got the message. And the judge didn't impose any time. What the judge did was sentence Grant Cooper to a $1,000 fine. And that's it. No questions asked. Now, here's the clincher. Remember I told you that John Rosselli furnished the transcripts? He wasn't even indicted in connection with the transcripts offense, even though his involvement was confirmed by a trial memorandum prepared in connection with that case. That's odd because the U.S. Attorney's Office would fulminate about what a dangerous character John Rosselli was in connection with the Friars Club case he threatens witnesses, he's an evil demon, he's a monster, he deserves to be buried alive. It was just it was incredible the way they would fulminate about this guy. They would also fulminate about him in a companion case that was filed against Rosselli for immigration fraud. If that's how they felt about him, why didn't they indict him in the transcripts case? Well, the inference is pretty powerful because he had rendered them a valuable service. He'd set up these lawyers in preparation for the assassination. And if you think I'm kidding, I've got a document in the record that confirms that John Rosselli, far from having disconnected himself from the CIA, was in contact with the CIA in December of 1968 after the Kennedy assassination and after Grant Cooper had been set up and compromised. So he was still in contact with them. He was still working with them when this happened. Let's talk about the physical evidence. Because remember, this plot is not going to work unless somebody else does it. I've already mentioned to you the evidence of Thane Eugene Caesar having been implicated. He was in position and in range. His gun was never checked. He told the police that he had gotten rid of his 22 before the assassination. But the receipt given by or in connection with the transaction to Mr. Yoder confirms that that transfer took place after the assassination and Yoder said that Caesar told him, be careful of this weapon It was involved in a police shooting. Caesar was an employee of Lockheed. He was a a racist. He was a virulent Kennedy hater. He was an ultra-right-wing fanatic. He was an obvious suspect who should have been pursued by the defense and by the police. The police allowed him to just skate scot-free. The police did a number of other things that were extremely bizarre. And remember, this is the third component of what has to happen to make this plot work manipulating the physical evidence so as to cover up evidence that multiple shooters were involved. The first thing that the police did is something that you would never expect anybody who's sane to do. They took all the victims, including the mortally wounded Robert Kennedy, over to Central Receiving Hospital, a triage center where the surgery is not going to be performed, and x-rayed everybody to get a bullet count. After an extended delay, Robert Kennedy is taken across the street, literally across the street and one block away, to Good Samaritan Hospital. That's an extraordinary thing for anybody to do, to delay treatment for somebody, a senatorial candidate or anybody else, who's been shot in the head and who's bleeding to death. But the LAPD's priority was to get a count for bullets. And Why did they want a bullet count? Because they wanted to know how many bullets they had to eliminate from the crime scene. Because too many bullets means proof of conspiracy. The police report confirmed that there were seven bullets taken from victims and an eighth bullet was lost in the ceiling. Any bullets on the crime scene confirms the use of multiple guns. The FBI photographs prove that multiple guns were involved because they prove that the crime scene contained bullet holes. The LAPD photographs essentially confirm the same thing. There were witnesses who saw extra bullets being removed. There were press photographs of extra bullets at a door frame. The evidence of extra bullets is massive and overwhelming. The police had to know how many extra bullets they had to get rid of. And sure enough, by the time of trial, with a compliant Grant Cooper on tap to make sure none of this really came out and was made an issue of, the jury was simply told the number of bullets is all accounted for. There's nothing mysterious about it. It matches. And there were no extra bullets on the crime scene. Now, the police did something else. They switched bullets and suppressed an extra gun. They also incinerated. 2,410 photographs in August of 1968. Photographs that were taken in connection with the assassination. There's no explanation for that. One of the things that was said, not in documentation, is that these photographs were duplicates. But there's no evidentiary support for that. And why do you have to incinerate duplicates? Why don't you just throw them away or put them in a pile and give them out as souvenirs in the office or do something? Why do you have to run off to a hospital incinerator and burn them up? I mean, what do you? Do? why is it so important to eliminate any possible trace of their existence? Well, those would have to have included some of Scott Enyard's photographs. You heard about that last night, so I won't go, go through that again. The police, and I'll get to bullet switching in a second, also test-fired two weapons as though they were crime scene weapons. One of those weapons was in police custody before the assassination making it look as though the police were involved in the assassination. What did they do with that extra gun that they test fired? They destroyed it about a month after the assassination. And then the police expert jumps up in front of the jury and lies and says, no, it hasn't been destroyed. Well, I can prove that it's been destroyed. I have documentation that was submitted in court that confirms that that gun was destroyed in July of 1968. That was a police weapon that they test fired as though it were involved in the crime scene. That is all were recovered at the crime scene and involved in the crime. They got test bullets from that weapon and used them to convict Sirhan. So the police must have recovered, I would argue, two weapons at the crime scene. One of those weapons looks like it was a police weapon. They can't have that influence lying around, so they destroy the weapon. Bullets. The neck bullet that was taken by Dr. Noguchi from the neck of Robert Kennedy was described in the autopsy report as having a unilateral transverse deformation, which is a fancy expression for a big knob on the top. Okay. But in 1975, the neck bullet was described by the panelists assembled at the request of Paul Schrader and CBS as though it had no such deformity. So the neck bullet underwent a transformation. One of the other victim bullets, that taken from Ira Goldstein, had an X placed on its base by the doctor who took out the bullet from Goldstein's buttocks. That bullet was described in 1975 as having no such marking was noted on the basis of that bullet in the report prepared in 1975. So there were at least two victim bullets, and I argue all victim bullets were fake. They were switched by the police early on. And that was confirmed by a visit that was made by our then researcher, Rosalind Mangan, together with me to the State Archives. We made two such visits in 1994. During the first visit, we saw a Kennedy neck bullet that had no deformity. And I wrote them a letter at the archives and said, what gives the autopsy report and the drawing on the face of the envelope containing this bullet show that it should have a deformity on it? We got back in August of 1994, and there was a deformity. I mean, they must have said, he wants a deformity, we'll give him a deformity. So up pops a deformity. Did this bullet grow a head? Was it a magic bullet? Well, it was a switched bullet. There were two bullets on tap, but it was. Lynn wrote a similar letter, and we also requested an opportunity to inspect the markings on the, the bases of the bullets. And we both pointed out there were problems with the markings, and I've just told you what the <coughs> problems were. We get to the archives in 1994, August, and we find that the bullets have been dipped in grease to prevent a viewing of the markings of the bullets. The ultimate impact of this interference with my work as Sirhan's attorney was to make it essentially impossible to look at these bullets in the archives to determine whether they matched bullets fired from the recovered Thane Eugene Caesar weapon or whether those bullets would match bullets test fired from the police weapon tested at the crime scene H18602. That weapon of course was destroyed but the possibility of investigating this was essentially wiped out when the bullets were covered in Greece. So I alleged all of this as a continuing due process violation by the prosecution as an interference with the court process and asked the court to order a halt to this. They did nothing. So I've given you a a good overview, I think, of what happened to the physical evidence. You can see that Sirhan was innocent, that Sirhan was not the person who shot Robert Kennedy. There's overwhelming evidence that somebody else was. Phil, perhaps, can tell you about the numerous witnesses who saw others at the crime scene with weapons, the numerous witnesses who saw Sirhan together with a girl in a polka dot dress, numerous witnesses who saw him with others before the assassination in other places and also on the scene. All of which would support a conspiracy interpretation, all of which would, would support the concept that Sirhan was programmed and manipulated and acting under hypnosis, they're consistent with that, and of course the best evidence, I think, is this report that I found of the visit to the Corona gun range, where the, a police officer observed somebody come in and sign Sirhan's name in the, in the gun range roster. So that's a good overview of the case.
0: You're listening to Lawrence Teeter, attorney for Sirhan Sirhan, who was wrongfully convicted for the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. This is Guns and Butter.
1: Let me just add some other interesting things. One reason I know that I'm on the right track is because once I filed the first petition, the police, the other side, went wild. There were a number of sting attempts and efforts to set us up. The first one was quite original. Lynn, who was then our researcher, was working up in northern Nevada, and she introduced me to a a guy named Jerry Vaccaro. Jerry Vaccaro said that Michael McCowan had told him that he, McCowan, was working undercover inside the defense camp as an FBI informant for the government. But he wouldn't put this in writing. Well, I regarded this as essentially true information, but I also didn't believe Carl. I thought he was an undercover operative. For a variety of reasons, I thought he was setting up a sting. Well, imagine my sense of horror when I get a call saying, a meeting has been set up at the Burbank airport, and Lynn and I are going to be there. This is from Adele. And I haven't been notified in advance. So I zoom out there for this meeting. And who walks in, together with Vaccaro, but I was told that there would be an LAPD officer there. So here's a cop. We sit down. And I'm asked by Vaccaro, so why are we here? Or the, the cop says, why are we here? That was Gene Scherer. And I said, well, I came to interview a witness, meaning Gene Scherer. He was from the LAPD, right? That's what I thought I was doing there. Well, Vaccaro says, "Hmm, Lynn knows why we're here. And I say to myself, that's interesting. So I say to him, why don't you enlighten me? Why are we here? So he comes up with his little idea. And his little idea is that these two characters want a power of attorney, and they want exclusive film rights on Sirhan's life in exchange for a declaration that they will give us saying that Vaccaro had been told by Michael McCown that Michael McCown was an FBI plant. And then the officer chimes in, and that's a false declaration. Well. They were asking me to, to give consideration for a false declaration. In other words, they were trying to set me up on a prosecution for suborning perjury. I reported this to the LAPD chief and to the, uh, the police commission and the DA's office. Never heard a word from them. Never heard a word. They also wanted a power of attorney. Can you imagine giving a power of attorney to anybody? I mean, Is my client incompetent? Is he unconscious? Is he about to die? Does he want the plug pulled? He's represented by counsel. Why should a power of attorney be in anybody's hands? And they wanted a power of attorney. So I thought this was a particularly interesting example of an attempt to take advantage of the fact that some of the other people connected with the case weren't lawyers and didn't have my level of understanding of the legal system and the way the cops operate and try to set up an operation that could be used to discredit us. This also happened with CBS. Two CBS folks wanted to arrange a meeting with uh, Sir Sirhan I got a call from one of them saying, oh, Lynn has given us permission to talk to Sirhan, but we want you there. And I said to myself, gee, that's awfully nice of you to invite me. It's my client, after all. So I show up at this meeting, and what they propose was an illegal meeting at the fence in which they can surreptitiously photograph and interview Sir Sirhan in violation of prison rules. Well, that was a setup. I reported that to the attorney's office at CBS they wrote back and said, well, we're going to drop the idea, but we know it's illegal. I reported this then, not to the warden, because I thought that that would lead to a, an accusation that I was snitching on reporters, but I reported it on, without mentioning names to the director of the Department of Corrections in Sacramento. And after two months, he wrote back and said, we appreciate your observing prison rules. Had you done anything else, you would have been banned from the prison system statewide. So there was a concerted effort after I filed this petition to get rid of me, to get me in trouble, to get me in trouble with the bar, and to possibly get me prosecuted. That was a direct response to what had been filed, which confirms in my mind that we were on the right track, that I was doing the right thing. And now, just to be very brief, to wrap it up, I filed a second petition which focuses on the blackmailing of Grant Cooper by Matt Burns' office, and that is going to be amended into the existing federal petition, but I've asked the federal court to transfer the entire case up to Fresno out of the jurisdiction of the federal court in Los Angeles because the federal court now has, as one of its judges, former U.S. attorney and now senior judge Matt Byrne. And my theory is that this is not an appropriate place for this petition to be decided by colleagues and subordinates or former subordinates of Judge Byrne who is accused in our papers of participating in a blackmailing scheme to pressure a lawyer into throwing the biggest case in 20th century U.S. history. So that's where we are now. Paul Schrade said last night, this is the only show in town. It's the only show in town. It's the only thing that's going on right now in this case. There's no more grand jury proceeding. There's no more 75 reinvestigation. But there is a lawsuit brought by Serhan in federal court, and we're seeking an evidentiary hearing. We're seeking a reinvestigation of the case, a total reopening. And that's an effort that certainly deserves your support. I have two petitions that I will ask you to sign that I'll circulate, one of which calls upon the Justice Department to explain this blackmailing scheme in the U.S. Attorney's Office, this outrageous perversion of justice, the other of which calls upon the governor to grant parole to Sirhan because he hasn't done anything. He's not culpable. So I'll ask you to sign those, if you would, and give us your support, and I'll answer any questions at the appropriate time. Thank you very much.
0: The hypnotic state that Sirhan was in, how would the perpetrators of that Ensured that his victim or his target would be Kennedy as opposed to anyone in what was a crowded pantry Well
1: First of all none of Sirhan's bullets hit Robert Kennedy if he had bullets even if he had bullets none of them hit So I don't think the perpetrators were interested in having Sirhan hit Kennedy they relied on the fact that he couldn't be trusted to carry that out they had other people in place That's why the shooting took place from the rear at much closer quarters. Look at the mechanics of this. It's devastating against Caesar. Caesar admits that when the shooting begins, he drops down to the floor and pulls his weapon. So he's in position, and he's right up against it. I heard him say at this Moldea press conference, where Moldea sheep dipped him and said, it's outrageous that you've been accused of this. You're innocent. At that press conference, he confirmed that there was nobody standing between Robert Kennedy and him that's named Eugene Caesar. He's right up against the body, he's down below, he pulls his gun, he and he alone is in position to fire these sharp upward angle shots as he rises up or as he drops to the ground. And he admits all of this. The only thing he's denied, he denied having fired his gun. But there was a witness who saw him fire that weapon. The LAPD and the DA's office went after him big time and then said he waffled and backed away. He, again, he didn't really recant. That was Don Schulman. But there was enough waffling for them to be able to say, well, you know, he was unsure. And that was their standard way of handling witnesses. If they wanted to prosecute Caesar, they wouldn't have handled Shulman that way at all. They would have flown him in there on a jet and vouched up both sides of the street for his credibility and said he was sure, and they would have handled him differently in discussions. They would have said, oh, Don, you know, great, let's go to lunch. Let's take you to a steak dinner. But that's not the angle they wanted to pursue. You know, they want to feign Caesar to take a vacation and leave the rest of them. And the telling thing, I think the most telling thing about the way they handled Caesar is instead of saying, you're under arrest after he implicated himself in this interview, they said, take a vacation. And they never asked for to see his gun at this point. And, they, of course, they didn't check any guns at the scene. That's another thing. They be- he behaved as though they were in on this from day one. You know, I can't believe that they were that incompetent. I don't believe in the Keystone cop's hypothesis for these assassinations. There's too much stupidity for it to be stupidity.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Lawrence Teeter, attorney for Sirhan Sirhan, who has been falsely imprisoned for 35 years for the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Petitions are being circulated to reopen the case and win justice for Sir Han. If you wish to help, you may contact the Committee to Reopen the RFK Assassination Case by email at reopenrfkcase at onebox.com. That's R-E-O-P-E-N-R-F-K-C-A-S-E at O-N-E-B-O-X dot C-O-M. Lawrence Teeter, Sir Hans' attorney, may be reached by phone at 213-387-4512. That's 213-387-4512. Or write to Lawrence Teeter, 3580 Wilshire Boulevard, Suite 1700, Los Angeles, California, 90010. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yaro Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. Thanks to Ralph Cole of Justice Vision for recording the sound. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628, or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net.
2: Hey, yo! Of your own cypher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life you know what i'm saying look side inside yourself for peace give thanks live life and release you dig me you got me